Yeah, good afternoon. Somebody said hello earlier, and there were a few people that responded, so that was good. Um, so, yeah, my good colleagues in the back, they said, how did you get 30 minutes? And I, I can't tell you exactly how, not Richard, I guess, has told us, but they talked as, they weren't sure if it was a, a curse or a, an award. And so I, and they didn't say whether they're cursed or rewarded with me talking for 30 minutes, but we'll, we'll, uh, get into it. So, some of you have seen this, this slide before, I'm, I'm certain, and, uh, and of course with, with our theme of, of the opportunities and challenges associated with growth, um, Dr. Green has mentioned and others many times that a, that a challenge and an opportunity is to see the uh, beef industry grow, especially the cow especially the cow herd. So not only the feeding industry with feed yards, feed lots, but also actually see the cow herd grow in uh, Nebraska. And this, this type of slide is often referred to then, is Nebraska is uniquely set to see a growth in the cow herd and the feeding industry because of, of these in integration that's occurring in terms of uh, corn production or grains in general, with that grain used and all sorts of rations, both in feed yards as well as supplemental feed. And then we have the biorefineries, um, which of course produce a byproduct that's used in, in feeding uh, livestock, especially cattle and feed yards and on pasture. And then of course, 50% uh, or more of the state is in grasslands and rangelands, high, uh, high quality uh, forage production. So the integration of these things can be seen as uh, growing, growing the, the base for growing a, a cow herd. And then intertwined in all this is that obviously with growing a lot of corn, there's a lot of stock residue. And uh, someone recently did a survey of, uh, of uh, cornfields in Nebraska and reported that as, as little as 20 to 25% of the stock fields in Nebraska that are available for dormant season growing are uh, actually being grazed. So that leaves a lot of uh, potential for growth in terms of dormant season roughage. And of course, not all of this uh, roughage and, and, and stock fields would be uh, grazed. A lot of it is uh, baled and then fed in pens or uh, dry lots during the dormant season to cows or, or growing animals. And then Roger reported earlier on uh, cover crops and then using those cover crops as a, as a feed resource or, or forage for growing animals or for cows uh, during the dormant season, especially in that uh, early fall to early um, dormant season period or early winter period. So what we're seeing is that with this integration, we're, we're getting more and more um, roughages, forages available for for grazing or feeding livestock during the dormant season, but we're not seeing much relative to the, to the growing season. And so with this increase in availability and use of roughages and forages during the, the uh, dormant season with increased um, stocking rates or in, increased cattle numbers that may result, then what happens to our, to our forage resources, to our grazing lands during the, the growing season? or what typically look at as the grazing season from sometime in May to sometime in October. 
And of course, many of you have seen these figures too, maps from, uh, from an article published in 2011, I believe, that shows, or 2013, that shows the increased conversion of grasslands to croplands um, that occurred in the late, uh, you know, around 2000, 2006 to 2011. So not only are we seeing increased cattle numbers potentially, but also fewer acres of grasslands to support that during the summer, during the growing season. So what can we do if we do increase the cow herd? And because of that increased forage availability, roughage availability during the winter. So we are going to look at an increased stocking rate and simply overgraze during the growing season, or do we look at increase forage production. And, you know, with the grasslands that we have, do we, we provide inputs that then increase forage production, or do we look at increased harvest efficiency, harvesting a higher percent of what's available? And of course, especially in eastern Nebraska on some subhumid grasslands, there's a lot of, there, it, there is opportunity to increase production because uh, uh, grass breeders continue to produce more uh, developed uh, grass varieties that increase, have increased production potential, so we can use them, and such inputs as fertilization has long been documented will increase forage production. And then on these eastern Nebraska pastures, we can look at increased efficiency of use of what's available. So we can look at higher stocking rates because we have simple plant communities, very often dominated by, some, by grass like smooth, uh, smooth bone grass. Those grasses grow rapidly following, following defoliation because there is good soil moisture, good uh, nutrient availability, and they can, these are plant types that can tolerate stresses, especially tolerate uh, high defoliation levels. So with more efficient uh, use of these grasslands, we can increase the percent that can be uh, defoliated or grazed during that growing season. Of course, we've moved uh, further west into semi-arid rangelands like in central and western Nebraska. This more, th these higher stocking rates, more efficient use become much more challenging because we're dealing with more complex uh, plant communities and ecological sites. These are plants that are less responsive responsive to inputs and then you've got you've got complex plant communities so each plant species responds differently to those inputs and overall the system is less tolerant to grazing so increasing efficiency harvest efficiency in rangelands semi-arid rangelands may be more um, more of an issue but let's just let's just focus on um, eastern nebraska pasture and irrigated pasture in sub-irrigated pastures like we have um, along the Platte River or in the sub-irrigated meadows of the sand hills. So, whoops. So we have a couple uh, yearlings grazing pastures, sub-irrigated meadow pasture uh, in the sand hills. And what do you notice about, this is, um, this would be uh, late June, early July. These are mostly perennial cool season grasses. And what do you notice? What's, what things pop out at you? Is the patchiness, right? So cattle, when they are allowed to select, when they, when they have more, more uh, grass than what they need, they're gonna return 
they're going to graze certain areas, return to those areas as fast as that grass growth grows because it's high in nutrient content. Whereas these areas that have not been grazed previously and those, those plants go reproductive, they get stemmy, they become less palatable, uh, lower nutrient density. And so we get, we get uh, this patchiness, which results in what? Low harvest efficiency. So from a production perspective, from an ag production perspective, all of this is waste, wasted, right? So we're looking to get a higher percent of what's available consumed by the animals. So how do we do that? Well, this is probably more the situation that a lot of producers like to see is an evenly, uh, evenly grazed area that there is not that standing uh, material that's not being utilized and therefore you should have a higher harvest efficiency, which means higher, potentially a higher gain per acre, right? So if we look at this, if we look at this figure, then we've got improved grazing distribution. So a higher percent of what's available is being grazed means then you have increased uh, harvest efficiency, right? Higher percent of what's available is being consumed, which then results in increased carrying capacity, which leads to, if that's what you want, higher stocking rates, higher production per acre, okay? So how do we do this? You know, this has been looked at for, for uh, decades. There's many, many options. Of course, lo location of water is, is, is a key. Most foraging, grazing animals are central place foragers, and so the center of their universe is water. So making water readily available certainly affects how animals dis distribute across the landscape. And there are other um, tools that can be used to affect, um, to affect distribution, but I'm gonna talk about grazing management. So why, just real quickly, how, how do we look at then that distribution of grazing and how can grazing management influence that distribution of grazing and how evenly a forage resource is used? So most people probably think of grazing in, in one context, one context only, especially those that don't understand grazing or are against grazing, is that we have cattle spread across a pasture, they graze the entire area for the five month grazing season, they select areas that are favorable to them, and they overgraze it, right? But actually in these situations, boy, I can't stop hitting that. In these situations, then on the top figure, the, uh, the cattle are selectively grazing, they have um, ready, ready, ready access to that entire pasture for the five month growing season, let's say, okay? So it, it becomes spotty, low harvest efficiency. So what is done in the lower um, cartoon there then, concentrate the animals in one fourth of the area and they stay in each pasture for 37 to 38 days, something like that, you know, divide 150 by uh, four um, pastures. And so they become more concentrated in one fourth of the area at each, um, uh, each pasture over the entire grazing season. And if we, we go ahead and get a little bit more intense in our management, we put 16 pastures now in that same management unit. We concentrate the animals in each one of the pastures, and now they're going to uh, move every 10 days or so. They're more concentrated. The uh, area within each one of the pastures is likely going to be uh, less diverse in terms of species growing, in terms of topography and, 
topography and so forth. So those animals within pasture are going to be more evenly distributed. And as they move from pasture to pasture, stocking density or grazing pressure is going to be higher. And likely the whole unit is going to be used more evenly. And if you get all the way to a 50 pasture system, they're moving every three days, higher density, higher grazing pressure, area within each pasture is more similar, and therefore there's more uniformity in, in uh, distribution. So how does this distribution then affect the different uh, components of graze, grazing uh, land systems? So, We've been, this group then, since 2010 and before, we've been looking at some uh, uh, critical component areas, what's the above ground production, uh, botanical composition in response to these different grazing strategies in, in, in trying to increase efficiency of use. Um, what's the utilization of that above ground biomass? What's animal performance and production in response to this increased management intensity? And then what's the rates of decomposition? And, and incorporation at these different nutrient pulses. Because if cattle are only in a pasture for three days, their effect on that system is during that three-day period, okay? So all the, that uh, pulse of nutrients and uh, interactions between that, in that continuum of livestock, dung, urine, and, uh, and soil is all being affected by those pulses. Okay? rather than just a, a continued long stocking during the entire 150 days on the entire area at one time. And then, as a result, what's the nutrient use efficiency? So these, uh, these, these are the group of scientists that are working, working on these uh, questions, and as Richard said, across uh, many, uh, many departments, and uh, a number of disciplines within, within the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture. And this research we're doing at the Barter Brothers Ranch. And of course, uh, as you would all expect, a lot of graduate students, undergraduate students, technicians in, involved as, as well. Um, this research is being conducted at the Barter Brothers Ranch, which is a, a University of Nebraska foundation property south of Bassett in the eastern sand hills. And, and this research is being done on sub-irrigated meadow. So not on the typical upland rangeland that you commonly think of in the sand hills, but sub-irrigated meadow, meadow that's more similar to what we would have here in eastern Nebraska uh, under well-watered conditions. So quickly, this grazing strategies that we're comparing then is something that's called mob grazing, which is ultra-high stocking densities. So instead of four or five animals per acre, we're at any point in time, we're talking 200 plus. And in order to get that level of stocking density and grazing pressure, those animals are being moved uh, on a half day basis. So our graduate students, technicians then are moving them across a, 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 a sub-irrigated meadow every half day with electric fence to get very high stocking densities or grazing pressure at any uh, point in space, in time. And then the um, two conventional grazing strategies are two four-pasture systems. One involves uh, a four-pasture over a 60-day period, so each, each um, of the quarter areas are being grazed for 15 days, and then the cattle moved on. 
Um, the the uh, first one is a once-over system. The, the uh, second one is a twice-over system, so the rate of movement is quicker, and they move through the four pastures twice during the uh, 60 to 80-day grazing period. And then we have a continuous stock treatment where the cattle go on to the pat one pasture and they stay in it during the entire grazing season. Meadows are in the sand hills are commonly used as hayland, and so we do have the uh, traditional hay treatment along with a no harvest control. And then uh, also our funding sources have been uh, three or four USDA grants and then uh, uh, University of Nebraska Foundation support. And so we also are doing much of this research on ranches. And uh, this is a ranch south of Johnstown on a uh, sub-irrigated meadow. And you can see the density of livestock. I mean, this, this is it. They're at about uh, 800 animals per acre. And so they're moving, they're moving seven or eight times per day in order to keep enough forage available to, to the cattle as they move across this meadow. So the purpose then with these ultra-high stocking densities from an um, advocate consultant uh, perspective is to attempt to uh, speed up the rate of nutrient cycling. We'll talk about that in a minute. But also, and, and then therefore get more organic matters, more total carbon into the soil, and build then the, 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 the depth, the structure, the water holding capacity, the fertility of the soils, therefore grow more grass in the long term, right? And then there's other things in terms of the evenness of fecal and urine deposition and uh, increased pasture productivity and increased animal production and performance. Of course, with that many animals per unit area, there's a lot of trampling. Okay, so when we talk about utilization, there's two components of utilization from the plant perspective, right? Plants are either with cattle grazing them, they're generally either consumed or they're trampled. And so uh, very often when you have high stocking densities, a high percent of what's available is, is uh, trampled. So there's kind of an antagonistic thing going on here. As you increase grazing pressure, as you increase uh, management intent, the, the, the management intensity of grazing, then is the animal going to trample it or is it going to consume it? And so it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. Obviously, most people are after high harvest efficiency, so they want the animals to consume it. But at the same time, they want it trampled so that that, uh, that plant material is getting into the soil and uh, being more rapidly decomposed. But we've found a lot of trampling. So this research, like I said, those of you who've been to Barter Brothers Ranch, it's, it's just on the meadow, 80-acre meadow south, or I should say west, of the house and lab there at the Barter Brothers Ranch. We started this... Uh, uh, Dr. Bolesky and I started this uh, research at this site in 2010, and then with additional support, we've been able to expand it into things like uh, nutrient cycling. So to this point, just to give you a summary of what we're finding, um, we want to conduct this study through, what is it, through 2018, so have an eight-year eight -year study. But in the first four year, years of study, what we've found is that this more management-intensive grazing has not influenced uh, plant production or species composition. So even with this uh, higher intensity of management, we're still getting the same level of production in terms of plant production, and botanical composition has not changed. And pretty much the same on um, 
private ranches. So here, here we have a ranch that's been practicing mob grazing, started in 2004. So this was about 10 years after he initiated mob grazing. And what this compares is the production of the grass annually, or of the, of the vegetation cover, in a meadow that's mob grazed versus an adjacent meadow that is simply being hayed each year. So the mob grazing has not resulted in any increase or decrease in terms of the production. I see that the whole legend isn't, legend isn't here, but these, the gray is the um, cool season grasses, the brown is the um, our sedges. Grazing tends to favor uh, increase in cool season grasses on these meadows. And in terms of utilization, what percent of what's available is actually consumed by the grazing animal? Again, these are on three of the Sand Hills ranches that we work with. And uh, the green bar is the, um, the amount of standing crop uh, prior to grazing. And so we have a lot of graduate students, undergraduate students, and technicians that go out. They clip immediately before um, cattle are moved into a strip. Um, they graze for a half a day, quarter day, whatever the case may be. Students go back in then and clip immediately after it's been grazed. And what they find is about 6 to 11% of the standing forage is still intact and remains after the grazing. So this is severe, severe grazing. And then anywhere from uh, 46 up to 61% is trampled, which means about 40 to 50% is actually consumed. So a harvest efficiency of 50 to 60%. On, on many of our grazing systems, we're talking about harvest efficiencies of 25 to 30%. So a greater percent of intake is possible with more uh, intensity of management. Of course, that's why it's done, right, from an economic perspective. So then the next question was then, uh, by drawing the larger team together, was what's happening in terms of nutrient cycling? Of course, one of the, um, I started off talking about efficiency of use of forage resources on range and pasture, and whether it can support, you know, increase in the cow herd. Right? But um, what we also want to see is what happens to the system. If we do move to these higher, uh, uh, harvest efficiency systems, how does that influence the nutrient cycling uh, and, and, and nitrogen and carbon pools and so forth in the system? So probably when people generally think about grazing on, on, on grazing lands, we look at this uh, nutrient cycling that's spatially coupled. So nutrients in the soil are up taken, taken up by uh, plants, the cattle graze the plants, they, they pass on the nutrients, the, the cattle are, um, are, are defecating and urinating, and so that nutrient pool is returning to the uh, soil, and so goes the cycle, right? There's some deviations in terms of atmosphere and so forth, but basically we think of it that way, right? So we've got the cattle out there grazing and they're they're eating and pooping and peeing and doing their thing across the landscape. And so, and we tend to think it's all fairly even, spatially and temporally. But actually we're, we're proposing then, and observation would indicate though, that there's decoupling going on, right? That 
cattle tend to graze in places they don't hang around or loaf around like around water or salt locations and that's where they're actually doing a lot of defecation and urination is in these concentrated areas so spatially then that that soil pool isn't necessarily being taken up by the plant pool across the pasture as a whole because the nutrients are being concentrated around favorite locations and so we get a we get a uh, nutrient uh, loading in, in, in air partial parts of the pastures, okay? So with the, the current study, we're focusing right now on, on, uh, on dung and how do we characterize the fate of nutrients from dung. And so specifically um, this past uh, two years in 2014 and 2015, we had a team of uh, people looking at what is the fate of nitrogen, carbon, and phosphorus during decomposition, how much of it is lost uh, via gaseous emissions. Um, of course, much of that, that is returned back, back to the pasture land. But what is being incorporated in the soil? How does the process vary over time through the, through the growing season? Um, and then we have an entomologist, uh, Jeff Bradshaw, working with us from the panhandle. And uh, he's asking questions about how dung beetles, dung beetles are quite common in the sand hills, found I think uh, 13 different species of dung beetles active uh, in the, the meadow we're working on. And then how, do, how does weather interact with, with these questions about nutrients and, and dung? Yeah, here's a few dung, dung beetles, right? I mean, yeah, it's a fascinating story, but I'll just show that there are dung beetles. And, and so, yeah, to talk through the methodology, of course, would uh, take some time and somebody with more knowledge of it than I have. But, uh, of course, uh, Martha Mamo and, and uh, Anna Wingar, our former, uh, former uh, postdoc, uh, worked and set up uh, most of this. But we have a couple graduate students then uh, on the meadow. They have collected each year, they collect a lot of crap from uh, cattle that are uh, on a forage diet. And then they, they in a, in a, in a uh, experimental setup here, they distribute that dung in blocks. And then they make that dung pat either open and available for dung beetle colonization, or they cover it with screening to keep the dung beetles out. And, uh, and then we have patches or blocks that have no dung on them at all. And then this laying out of the dung is done twice, once, once in mid-June, once in mid-July. And then, then the, those dung pats are followed and uh, data collection collected from them over a two-month period in, in both cases. Since you're all kind of serious here. Everybody says, everybody say, you know, has to have a pun or something, you know. It's a crappy job, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, very briefly, what we found so far is that, this is the 2014 data, is that uh, what's happening with the nutrients, uh, with, with nitrogen and carbon uh, in the dung pats, is, 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 there, and is there a difference between those dung pats that are colonized by dung beetles and those that are not? Very briefly, so far, whether we're talking about gas emissions, uh, concentrations of nutrients, nutrients in the soil or concentration of nutrients in dung is there hasn't been differences between dung beetles, uh, uh, colonized dung pats, and 
non-colonized dung pats. So that the amount of methane um, being emitted from those two different kinds of pats has not differed. Um, in terms of soil, uh, ammonium nitrate, their nitrogen contents have not differed. And uh, in terms of uh, concentrations of ammonium nitrogen uh, has not differed in the dung. Okay? Certainly different in, the, in terms of the soil concentration of nutrients below dung pats than out in the open, but we're not seeing a, a beetle effect so far. And of course we are, uh, members of our group are collecting dung beetles and uh, using, uh, using pitfall traps. And of course, anybody know what the bait is in these pitfalls? Because you know, you just have these, these little holes set out in pastures and then the dung beetles are just walking along and they fall in the trap, right? And they're asphyxiated. And uh, basically this is antifreeze. But do you know what attracts them to that trap? Chimp poop. So our entomologist from Scotts Bluff, so he goes to the Scotts Bluff Zoo and uh, gets an order of chimp, chimpanzee poop because it's, really gets the dung beetles going. So it's a way to collect dung beetles on these different uh, treatments to see where they're the most active. Interestingly though, we thought perhaps we had hypothesized we'd see the gr greatest density of uh, dung beetles on the uh, mob grazed areas because there's that spatially and temporally a consistent supply of dung, but we haven't seen a difference in diversity as far as a diversity index in the difference with the difference between mob grazed and the conventionally grazed pastures. Okay? So the beetles aren't exactly responding as we thought they might be. So with, with this baseline information relative to, uh, then relative to dung decomposition, nutrient um, release into the soil, nutrient concentration in the soil, we then want to take that out to the pasture, to the pasture level, and so um, we want to see then how do grazing strategies impact, impact the temporal and spatial distribution of the nutrient uh, pools. So in a um, high density, high stocking density uh, area within a management unit, there should be more even distribution of dung, uh, dung piles, dung pats, and, and urine spots because the animals are more evenly distributed. Whereas in a continuously stocked pasture at the other extreme, the cattle tend to hang out in their favorite places and then the dung pats, urine spots are located around those areas. So since we know then, we're learning more the dynamics of, of uh, nutrient cycling with static dung, uh, dung pats, what happens then out in a pasture? How does this impact nutrient cycling if we have those uh, dung pats more evenly distributed versus them uh, congregated, concentrated in uh, favorite areas of the cattle. And so, yes, we're using UAVs too, and uh, Richard Ferguson's, as you saw, is part of this study, and so uh, started last, uh, late last summer in uh, using UAVs or drones to map out the location of dung pats and urine spots uh, on these different types of pastures. And so then then our goal is to quantify potential at the pasture level of soil nitrogen mineralization, carbon storage, phosphorus availability, and so forth is our, is our goal there here in the next year. 
and then he, uh, eventually, then Haishun is, uh, is the modeler on the team, then there will be a, a modeling exercises to, uh, t uh, to um, yeah, develop the explanations, the directions, the models for, for nutrient cycling on these pastures that are managed with different, um, uh, different intensities. So, in the end, can we use our pastures more efficiently to not only um, to increase the efficient use of the forage resource, but how does that affect long-term production of those sites? How does it affect species composition? What's happening above and below ground relative to nutrient availability and patterns uh, of, of availability of the nutrients? And then can we, can we model it? So that's... That's where we are, Richard. <laughs>